Thank you for listening to the Smoke Hole Sessions. They were inspired by my new book, Smoke Hole, Looking to the Wild in the Time of the Spyglass, which is available from all good bookshops. tell stories is to attend directly to the dead. Not just the dead, but I think this world belongs a lot to the dead. So when you tell stories, they fire out in many different directions. I'm probably equally known these days as both a oral storyteller and as a writer. So I live on the hinge like Hermes between both. But it's the bookend of the game I want to push into today. Some of you are going to know a man called Walter Ong, who was a writer and a great authority on orality. That sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? But he reminds us that the Hebrew word debar means both word and event. So a word is an event. The example he gives is if a hunter can smell and taste and touch a bear, that's fine. But if he can hear a bear or hear a buffalo, then he better get out of the way quick. She better get out of the way quick. It's a long time before people spoke into phones or iPads or our much cherished journals. Early contracts between human beings actually had to be memorized. You had to memorize the minutiae of the detail uh, to be, you know, called upon in retention if ever needed. So the early, some of the very, very early examples of poetical speech are primarily kind of oral contracts, really. Uh, just things that you had in your head, arrangements of the day. And so we can see that although we tend to think of poetics as, some, as a rather florid exercise, preservation would have been as important as innovation back in the very earliest days. Well, time passes, doesn't it? Literature arrives gradually. And one of the connective tissue between orality and literature was the old bardic schools that we find in Ireland and Wales and a few other places. And they had an interesting take on writing. An Olav, chief bard, would give his students some kind of difficult, naughty, uh, obtuse question. Maybe something from their work, their concord, or their quartans, or their termination, or their syllables, or their union. And the students would scurry off into a dark place, a little hut. They would put a stone on their belly and they would lie in the dark <laughs> ruminating and cogitating and turning it all around in the blooded brick of their brain until finally the place would be filled with light and their tutor would be there with a lamp and he would ask them uh, what is their response they would spring up they would give their answer they'd roll it out on the antler tip of their tongue 
And that was what it was. Then and only then could they commit the oral tussle, the mental tussle, the psychic combustion of it all, to writing. Because writing was another kind of power altogether. I remember Shea Massini talking about the bards and how they would grieve when their Olaf died. He said it was as if they'd all gone to prison. It was like going to prison without their Olaf. Very beautiful. Another writer I love is Ivan Illich. And in his masterful book, In the Vineyard of the Text, he takes us up to the medieval era. And he focuses on someone called Hugh of St. Victor, a monastic character. And he talks about that moment where words were now getting written down, but they had to be read out loud for the very simple reason is there were no gaps between the words. The thing didn't really make sense until you read it out loud. And how once the monastic tradition had twigged, there was this relationship between what you spoke, what you wrote down, then the agency of writing grows in potency. And he gives the example, he says, well, you know, Hugh of St. Victor would have spoken to his students. But a hundred years later, Thomas Aquinas lectured to them. So Hugh's students would have gone away and read his utterances, but Aquinas' students read his compositions. We see the energy moving, don't we? We see this other complexity arriving, word magic, the magic of the book. And that's kind of where I want to turn today. Gary Snyder says that for many of us, books are our grandparents. They are the great repository. They're all the things we often didn't receive orally or in uh, anything uh, approximating cultural richness. And if we're going to be talking about books, if we're going to talk about the health of books, then there was only one person I really wanted to speak to. And he's called John Mitchinson. Many of you will know him. He is an author, publisher, broadcaster, very well-known geezer to writers. And he is, I suppose at the moment, best known as co-founder of the publishing house Unbound. In the world of podcasts with Andy Miller, he presents their really excellent podcast called Backlisted, where they renovate or rehydrate old books that we may have forgotten about, and they bring them back into scurrilous life. He has been closely associated with the TV show QI. He was their associate producer. He co-authored lots of their books. As a cherub, get this, he actually was the marketing director of Waterstones. And when he's not involved now in any of these very interesting things to do, he's hanging out in Oxfordshire on a small holding with his wife, his kids, his chickens, his pigs and his sheep. And I think for a man who spent his life pressed into a book and catching all its glorious perfume, John is someone for us to talk to. So let's go find him. John Mitchinson, what a delight 
to have you here, tucked away in my cottage in Dartmoor for a little time. Thank you so much for having this time with me. I could not be more pleased to be here, Martin. I've, I've, um, I've followed your, your career for, for many years and oh. um, I always felt we were destined to meet at some point. Lockdown has brought us together. So for, if, if nothing else, I'm grateful for that. Indeed. Now, I've, I've been thinking about when did I first hear of you, John? And actually, it was way back, maybe eight or nine years ago. And I was in Lost Withiel in Cornwall in a pub with, at that point, uh, a relatively unknown Paul Kingsnorth. Yes. And uh, he said, there's this thing. I'm writing a book, but it's in a made-up language. <laughs> and I remember saying to him quietly, well, well, good luck with that project. <laughs> you know, Godspeed. And he said, well, there's this guy. There's this guy, John, and there's this thing called Unbound. And I think we can figure something out. And actually, the first thing I noticed was a few weeks later there was a very nice promotional video of Paul standing, yeah. I think, by a lake or in a forest. And suddenly I got in a second what Unbound was about. I loved the sort of the presentation. It felt intimate, exciting, something to jump into. And that's been this incredible success. So kudos for kudos for that and, and for giving Paul the spaciousness that his writing yeah. and his thinking requires. I mean, what a gift. Well, thank you. I mean, I, you know, there are sometimes some books you feel really, as a publisher, you really feel destined to to publish. And um, I I can't now remember how Paul and I met in the, at the very first, very first time. I think it might have been, I think it might have been uh, 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 through a mutual friend who said, you, I've got something that you should read. Or maybe Paul even sent it in, but I, I'd been an absolute. Um, I mean, I'd taught myself to read Anglo-Saxon as a teenager because I was like a lot of a lot of seventies kids. I was a massive Tolkien fan. I like to think that my Tolkien fandom, which of which I'm still, I'm still very very happy and proud to to be a sort of card carrying member of the Tolkien fan club. But it it was the language that really interested me, and his interest in language, and him as a philo- uh, I ended up through very strange and complicated route going to Merton College because that was where that was where Tolkien had gone, and because I had this premonition as a child that I was sort of I should have been born in the in late Dark Ages rather than uh, the twentieth century. Anyway, so Paul's shadow tongue, as you say, you say it's written in this extraordinary halfway house between. Anglo-Saxon and and modern English. It's a sort of an invented tongue. But the story was just so... I mean, it, it, once you get into the, the book, three or four pages in, you really don't notice, you get into the rhythm. I, I just thought this is so original and so odd and so powerful. And he's, it's such a strong story that he's telling about such an interesting moment in English history, you know, the kind of the destruction of Anglo-Saxon culture, the arrival of the Normans, felt very contemporary. I think Paul said it was a post-apocalyptic novel set a thousand years ago, mm. which is a brilliant description, great one-liner. Um, and we met and, and, and uh, I mean, we got on and, you know, he said, well, I, I've got an agent. And I said, well, go ahead, <laughs> fill your boots, let your agent send it out to. And I said, if, if he doesn't place it, slightly confident, overconfidently at that point, I said, which he won't. Mm. 
I'm here and I'd love to do it. And, and that is actually what happened. Mm. Um, I think most people just looked at it and thought, gosh, how, how on earth would we do this? But it was, a, yeah, I mean, it got onto the book, a long list. It became a bestseller. Um, it sort of established him. He got a great deal with Faber and Faber on the back of it. Um, and we're still in touch. You know, we're still... One of the most exciting things, and I think you come into this story as well, is that we sold the film rights. Um, somehow Mark Rylance had heard of it, and he, yeah. we ended up doing a live events with Mark at the Hay Festival where he read in this extraordinary way, which brought another dimension to it. It sounded like Jamaican patois, the way he did it, which had a... a Anyway, he bought the film rights, and that's still out there somewhere. He's still working with, he's worked with various people, Jez Butterworth and I think Paul Greengrass have been involved. But I think at, at some point in that process, you and Paul and, and, and Mark Rylance met in maybe... We did. Now, the Rylance connection with me uh, was before Paul. It's because I had a long, a long association with the American poet Robert Bly. Yes, who I worked with towards the, you know, Robert is still alive, but he's, you know, he's 96, so he's, he's out of active service. Amazing. But still rocking around Minneapolis, you know, you'll still see him walking the dog. And Rylance, and at the formation of the Globe, actually, had brought over Bly, the American psychologist James Hillman and others. Brilliant. And that was a world I was utterly immersed in and working within, extraordinarily, uh, in the States. So I had turned up mob-handed at Mark's door uh, in South London with Coleman Bucks, the roomy translator, and a, you know, a bottle of whiskey. Yeah. And from that point on, I met Mark here and there. And then very graciously, Paul and Mark, not surprisingly, right off the back of the success of The Wake, got a very high-profile slot at the Edinburgh Festival and, you know, I was unknown, especially in any kind of literary circle, but it was due to Paul just digging in, said, and I want my mate. And so suddenly there's me, Paul, and Mark. Mark's it's right in the middle of Wolf Hall. He's just about to win an Oscar. So you would see rooms, the, the energetic in a room would just change when he was there. It was that level of fame. Yeah but a gracious, eccentric, brilliant man. Absolutely. And actually, so the, the, the deal was Paul would read from The Wake, I had discovered an East Anglian version of the folk tale Iron John. Brilliant. Which I call Woodawaza, but it's all really Fenland district and this, be, this hairy being lives under the water. So I told it to Mark and Mark said, I said, I'm going to tell this story for the one and only time tomorrow to a thousand people. And Mark said, well, could I tell it with you? I'll be the fi I'll be the characters. So right there and then, suddenly, I'm working with the, the greatest actor of our age. Yes, for sure. We're back and forthing. And what I saw was his incredible improvisational chops. It's not just a script with him. It's this other thing entirely. But that was a little door. It was Paul's generosity that opened that. He didn't need to do that. Ironically... As a publisher, you'll be able to grit your teeth for this. Because at that point, I had a wonderful but far distant American publisher. They couldn't get the books. They couldn't get Snowy Tower to the festival. But everybody wanted me to sign something. So I signed 100 copies of The Bloody Wake. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. So, I, so Paul was on a big stool. 
I was on a small kind of gnomic, like a, like a figure, from one of the goblins from Harry Potter, sort of signing it underneath. And one of the thoughts I had at the time was, you know, I've, I've got to get in touch with somebody on this side of the water yeah. who has a feeling for what I'm doing. And that wouldn't happen overnight. And there were still quite a few years effectively, literally and metaphorically in the wilderness. But anyway, we'll come to all of that. One of the things that you've been so deeply involved in, of course, is books. And there's very little in the world for me that's more magical than books. And I wanted, while I had this moment with you, to tell you two very brief stories about books. Great. Weird, weird things. 10, 12 years ago, I'm in Minneapolis and I'm browsing a bookstore called Magers and Quinn, lovely little bookstore. And I'm in the back and to my astonishment, there's a mythology section, which these days, if you see a mythology section, usually it means psychology or self-help in disguise. <laughs> but this is real mythology. Yeah, it really interesting. I can see on the top shelf, there's an enormous volume of African folklore. And I think, well, that's a culture I know very little about. It'd be good. So I'm reaching up for it, but this tiny little book keeps jutting out next to it, and I push the book in and I try and get the big African book. The little white book juts out. Finally, it flips off the shelf, lands on the floor. I pick up the tiny book in Minneapolis, 5,000 miles from home, and it's called Folk Tales of Devon. Wow. And on the cover is a photograph of the house that my grandmother Monica always dreamed of buying. Wow. I can show you it right now. It's Cockington in Devon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a big white house, and that would have been the family house. Amazing. So that led to me drawing a kind of effective chalk circle around where I lived. And for the next half decade, I only dug into locality. I, I walked in an almost Aboriginal way the song lines yeah. of localised stories. So that's story number one but the second story is even better. <laughs> I was sitting once again down in Devon with a very senior English storyteller called Hugh Lupton. Yeah, no. And we were talking about one of my deep obsessions, which is the totemic Devonian figure, although really a Yorkshireman of Ted Hughes. And he, we're, we're just chatting and he says, well, of course, I, I imagine that Moortown Diaries is a big book for you. And somehow, <laughs> somehow, it had slipped by me. And I said, you know, I, 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 I haven't got it. And he said, oh, it's, it's one of my very favourite books. You must, if you remember nothing else from our conversation, if you remember nothing else from meeting Hugh Lupton, find Moortown Diaries. Now, at this point, uh, I'm still not looking for books on the internet. I just wander around, as is my deep delight, just secondhand bookstores. Yes. Absolutely. Time passes, six months pass. I haven't found the book, but it's always in the back of my head. It's Christmas Eve. I am in Norwich, of all places. I'm not in Devon. It's snowing. I come across a second-hand bookshop, and to my great delight, finally, the book is in my hand. Moortown Diaries. And I think, well, like, I must, t I'll tell Hugh that I finally tracked this down, but I better read it first. So I go back to this little cottage in the, the hamlet of Wacton on the road to Dis. I open the book up, I have a pint, and it's just fantastic. Yeah. But it's an old battered copy. And I think, well, I should just, as, I, as is my want, 
who owned it before me. So I go to the front of the book and it says, this book belongs to Hugh Lupton. No. (laughs) No, that is the universe, right? Yeah. And there was a phone number. Brilliant. And I rang this number and a younger Hugh Lupton... (laughs) It was like an answering machine from about 1984. Oh, how brilliant. A sprightly, devil-may-care Hugh Lupton left this message. Somehow in the, the voluminous darkness of the world, this little answering machine still arrived. So I said, I'm not sure which century I'm now speaking to you in, but I found the book and it's your copy. And, of course, Hugh and I went on then to to work together and and do stuff, but I wondered if you had any strange encounters with books over the years. Oh, um, (laughs) I mean, I think that you're right about sort of the the magical aspect of books. I've got a a copy of... um, um, I was very fortunate to, to publish one of those sort of magical things that happens sometimes in publishing. I was at the Frankfurt Book Fair, not a place, to be honest, that's over full of magic most of the time. But I had a meeting with a, a, an agent there, slightly rapacious agent, not the jackal himself, but one of the jackal, uh, Andrew Wiley's um, juniors. And I was working for the publisher Harvel at the time, and she uh, gave me a pile of books by American writer William Maxwell, who at that point I had not heard of. And she said, we're, yeah, you know, for some reason he's not in print in the UK. And he ought to be. He was the fiction editor of The New Yorker for 40 years. I went, and, you know, as you do, back to my uh, hotel room in Frankfurt and read a short novel called So Long See Tomorrow, which is, I think, one of the great short novels of the 20th century. And I, it was it's that very rare experience of reading something that is undeniably great literature a classic you have the chance to publish it so well we did the deal the magical bit comes when I went up to New York and it was the year before William Maxwell died it was 1996 and I met him and his wife Emily in their wonderful upper west side apartment and he he gave me uh, two things he gave me a copy of the letters of Sylvia Townsend Warner which he'd edited which is amazing, but but another first edition of a of a novel called They Came Like Swallows, and he signed it, had sort of spidery handwriting, and gave it to me. I suppose I'd never, th- I mean, I'd read the book at the time, I hadn't read that edition, but when the pandemic started, there was a lot of uh, loose talk uh, about the nineteen eighteen flu pandemic, yes, and how for one reason or another, it had not produced any great literature. And somewhere in the back of my mind, I remembered, hang on, Maxwell's mother died in that pandemic, and I'm sure that's the, that's the thing that drives the plot of They Came Like Swallows, which is was, it's his second book, but his, his first truly beautiful book. So I, I read that at the beginning of this pandemic. I mean, it's almost a year ago now. And there was something about reading it you know, that thing of a hand giving it to another and the fact that oh, I do. the person who, who, who'd written that signature's mother had died in the last... I, I, it was, you know, that thing where the, the meaning floods, you know, you, you, and, and, and suddenly a book that is, you know, you've enjoyed but you haven't thought about suddenly becomes 
every sentence somehow seems to take on a kind of a shining magical quality. I think that's the that's the thing about books. They're, they're not that. It's why it's not being precious when you know people say I don't really like them being called product or content or because they are they aren't what they appear to be. It's funny we're just. We're just preparing a podcast that I'm doing later on today on Tristram Shandy. Mm. And what Stern makes you feel the oddness of what you've got in your hand and the, the physicality of what you've got in the hand. And how is it that something so ordinary looking can be a portal to um, to almost anything, to almost anywhere? Yes. Um, so yeah, that that the, that Maxwell book is the one that, that that springs to mind. But yeah, I mean, over the years, um, like you, I mean, I spend a lot of my time, a lot of my time in secondhand bookshops, looking and finding, uh, and, and and being and, and always being amazed by by what people, either what people choose to give away or or what, um, you know, what impossibly ugly jackets <laughs> are put on books that end up being you know books that you absolutely love and revere. Do you know, it's funnily enough, on that note, there was a book out maybe last year called, I think it was called The Faber Story, something like that. It was sort of, you know, letters around the years of Faber and Faber. Yeah. And there are letters where they say, Ted Hughes has an opinion about his new book cover. And, you know, of course we won't let him do it. And I was <laughs> like, Jesus, bring, this is Ted Hughes. He may have a thought. You know, a Hughesian cover, I think, would have been very Duende, very Lorca, you yeah. know, dark roses, thunderstorms. Rah, rah, rah. Uh, and, of course, it comes out with that sort of iconic Faber covers. But I, it, it was, I suppose it was refreshing for me in a way because I thought, well, even Ted Hughes doesn't always get his way. <laughs> um, one of the, you know, it's clear anybody that re- is listening at this point will have a sense of some of the things that you've been up to over this last, you know, 30 or 40 years. I would love to know, at this point in your life, what feels alive and exciting for you? It's a really good question. I'm 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 having a bit of a I'm having a bit of a publishing second wind for all kinds of complicated reasons. I left publishing and had a very happy period writing for QI the TV show and I mean which was basically a license to spend my time looking in weird and wonderful encyclopedias and and you know researching and writing about almost anything and with someone with an immensely low boredom threshold so I absolutely loved that but I I think I'd come to a point I mean I Unbound sort of mugged me from behind I'd, I'd always thought no I can't I mean, in a way, a little bit like the sort of Ted Hughes story you told. You know, I thought I can't go back into all that, all that sort of cheese pairing and and kind of you know being mm. being a sort of the midwife to second rate uh, books that are going to be forgotten as soon as they're. <laughs> uh, you know, the karma I always felt in publishing was bad. It was a, an industry where everybody was saying no to everybody all the time. You know, that mm. that people were telling lies about how successful things had been, and you know, great books were being turned down. And I, I thought I just need to get away from that energy. Yeah. For a long time, I was in and out of doing it. And I think it's taken really until the last, I would say probably even in the last 12 months, again, maybe because of the strange things that we've been living through, where I suddenly felt, I know how to do this. Things are beginning to come my way. I, you know, I get a phone call from Patrick McCabe, the great Irish novelist, who said, you know, my friend, our mutual friend, Tim O'Grady, said that I should talk to you about my new novel. And it's 
suddenly beginning to feel, I mean, even in a funny kind of way, Martin, this conversation that you and I are having, I feel suddenly like I'm, I'm having useful and interesting conversations with, with writers whose work I admire and, and, and I have the a sort of the flexibility of model that means we, I can do something, I can help, I can, I can break the log jam of, of sort of bad karma and negativity. So that's good. And at the same time, I suppose there's still a kind of, I live in a small village in Oxfordshire and like you, I've, I've walked the boundaries and the and gathered stories and I've, I've at some point I've got to find a way of, of of bringing that together I mean I'm 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 very comfortable with not being a kind of Muriel Spark type novelist who produces a book a year but I would like to get some of it down I'd like to preserve some of the mm. not least because people have told me stories and I feel they ought to be preserved in some way and because for all the insults and 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 challenges the the the, the, the English countryside the relationship between the land and and the history and identity all of those things uh, still really matter to me my feeling is that we've got a lot of interesting writing coming coming out in that area you know whether it's you know max porter's fiction which i think is is wonderful or some some also some brilliant poetry being written i suppose i feel i'm i, I what excites me is trying to find a way of of restoring some of that energy to people who perhaps feel that they've lost it and that, that books still are an amazing way of doing that but you know books and podcasts and and there's there's so many more ways to to to, to present people with stories now than there, there have ever been yes so i mean the the word i kept that kept coming up as you were talking was was conviviality yes uh, and I'm a big believer in conviviality. You know, um, the Sufis say when even the prayers don't work, it's time for a conversation. And that conversation can really, is a, is a radical proposition. And one of the things I immediately felt from that very first discussion with Paul in the pub in Lost Withyall, that there was a heartbeat attached to this character he was talking about, which I had not really experienced much of in publishing. Like, I think I think all authors do, of course, is a lot of no, yeah. as you say. And then suddenly to be in the position you're in where you can bring some of that, that warmth, that interest, that erudition, that soul into the encounters that you have. That sounds wonderful to me, especially when you're working as a farmer on the quiet as well. Or at least <laughs> at least a small holding. I don't know the A small holder, yes. But but I think that in some ways I think there's there's connections between the two. And I think that that the conviviality is important, um, for me anyway. That conversation is I mean, reading is a conversation. That's I think been one of the the things that's fascinated me about lockdown is that for a lot of us, we've had to we've had to go back to what we've got. So much of our life is caught up in connections with other people um, that actually going back, what is it? What have I got in the tank? What do I? What? Do, who am I? What? What do I really feel? What? Do, what is it that I need? And I mean, I'm, I'm clear that I need conversation. I need. The, the you know I love I'm a social person I like being I like food and drink and I like talking but I also I think have realized that I need more time I need not I need more time on my own and that might be an experience that's common to a lot of people 
they've rediscovered themselves. Um, and that in the end, you, if it's particularly with writing, I think you, that's where you have to go. Yes. You know, it's, it's, it's a, that maybe writing is a conversation with yourself in, in the end. My background before writing was in something called Wilderness Rites of Passage. So for the last quarter of a century, I've been taking people frequently from urban environments up into Snowdonia or out into the wilds of Dartmoor into some old pagan wood where the nub of the experience is four days and nights, completely alone, without food, plenty of water. And then on the last night, if, if that wasn't enough, an all-night vigil where you sit up paying attention to anything the, the land, the earth or God wants to say to you. It's so interesting, Martin, because Paul told me, I mean, this, this thought has been in my head for at least, nine, it must be nine years since he told me that he'd done that. And he said, you know, you, I, I should introduce you to Martin, you should do this. And it has been, you know, at the top of my list. Of what if somebody said, what, what, is, what, what would you really love to do? I said, I'd really love to go and spend four days yeah. silently on a, on a wild retreat. There is a, and, a, and I follow, you know, I, I, I follow your, your um, I'm subscribed to your newsletter and website. So, oh, right. So okay. it's, yeah. and it, I suppose it's interesting what it is that is, you know, that fascinates me is I think there's a lot of, you know, wildness is, is the interesting thing. And, and uh, mm. wildness is definitely in retreat in the, in where I live, you know, we've got, and I'm that in itself is fascinating. I mean, I I, I think people get, I, I try not to be sentimental about the countryside. The countryside has always been repurposed, and the landscape that we love is is a palimpsest of human activity. You know, but the, the the wild finding those wild places and reconnecting, which I think is such that you write about with such mm. energy, and, and I think that's the thing I, I respond most to you in, in your. In a, in a world where everybody potentially is now a nature writer, you're connecting into a much, you know, it's a, it's a human thing for you yes. as, as well. It's, it's, a, it's that kind of, that place where stories come from, where, where, which connects cultures. It's always been, you know, I, had, I read a lot of Joseph Campbell at, an, at, an, at a young age, and you know, I don't think you ever, you never, once you've got that sort of way of looking at the world, I don't mm. think you shake it off. And I, I suppose that's what I'm always looking for in books that I publish, some something that goes takes deeper something where the i was thinking the other day something where the writer isn't in control you know campbell because of his massive success and the scale of his scholarship is terribly unhip as you can probably imagine yeah and admitting most people, rather like most of us, somewhere at some point we listen to nothing but Deep Purple for two years. <laughs> uh, it's the thing that you skip over and claim all you've ever listened to is the Velvet Underground and the specials. You know, <laughs> so true. Hip, hipness presides over here, and there is oh Jesus, it's Jethro Tull and and Zep and Bloodwin Pig yeah. and Chicken Shack. And uh, Maharishna Orchestra, that's over there. So, so Campbell is a very interesting thing because it's it's a he's a very easy thing to wallop, especially in a moment like this where there is much needed attention to diversity. Campbell's essential message, which he which he nails in his first book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, is of course saying, "Do you know what? Of course." 
cultures are vastly different from each other, but I can't help but notice yeah. that in the simple experience of being human, certain motifs keep popping up. I was talking to someone the other day and I said, you know, I, I've been uh, suspicious or or distant from the notion of the, you know, his famous thing was called The Hero's Journey. Yeah. But I must admit, at this point, when I look back at my own life, I look at, you know, being hurled into the underworld for several years, crawling out with a gift, being able to pass that gift on in, in, in the communication of a book or an evening of speaking, you know, there's something in it. Nick Cave, I was talking to the comedian Tommy Tiernan, an Irish comedian, about this the other day. Nick Cave said, I've lost belief or faith in a kind of unbroken story narrative. My own life has been so terrible in the last few years. Yeah. I, I can't do that anymore and I can't do it in my lyrics and I can't, I, I'm not going to tell you a story anymore like Johnny Cash does or Leonard Cohen. But that doesn't mean, you know, storytelling is such a varied and wide, uh, I was saying to Tommy, it's as, you can tell, it, there are as many ways of telling stories as there are weather patterns or animals on the planet. There isn't one... Completely right. But I, in in my own work, when I started to write seriously, which would have been in my... I, I met Joe Strummer by accident, Com completely by accident. I was just... I was living in a tent. I'd been living in the tent for several years. I end up at a lunch, and this, what looks like a rockabilly, plonks himself down next to me and says, you know, part past the claret, past the Chateau Neuf de Pape, uh, whatever it was. And I have two seconds to realise... Who it is. This is Strummer. And I somehow managed to keep a lid on, you know, excessive trawling over Clash B-sides or anything like that. And he just said, where do you live? And I said, well, I live in a tent. And he said, ah, let's talk. And um, in the midst of this, he'd been on the road with The Who, who I love i mean i get uh, i i get teary when i hear yeah. the who on occasion and uh he said he said actually touring the states with the who at this point he said i love them but it's just not as interesting as you might expect playing shed after shed after shed and he said actually i'd rather be in a tent too but in the middle of it all he said you know man he said what you really should do is is write about it yeah and at that point i had no I, I was the first year to do GCSEs, not O-levels. Right. So back in the 80s, no qualifications from school, nothing, straight into factories. You know, uh, I thought I'd be saying, you know, do you want fries with your myth for the rest of my life? <laughs> <laughs> but Strummer said, right, man, right. And so I went back to my little tent. I had no computer, no phone, nothing like that. And I started... I wrote this sentence. I said, if you don't want to be Crazy Horse, Pablo Neruda or Boudicca, stop reading now. <laughs> and I felt myself for the first time ever in the words. In the words. I felt not persona. I felt a bit of presence in there. Yeah. But with but without and Strummer died eight weeks later. Incredible. You know, he was at my age now. Yeah. You know, he went, he was walking his dog, said, not feeling good. Uh, and that was it. So I, it's it's Joe's fault, in in the best sense of that word. 
Uh, and uh, it's interesting. I'm living, beginning to live in a moment. I did the Cambridge Literary Festival earlier on this week with uh, the wonderful Jay Griffiths. Oh, love Jay. I'm going to do Hay with my dear pal John Densmore from The Doors in June. He's got an amazing book out called... Uh, Fantastic. Yeah, his book's called The Seekers, Meetings with Remarkable Musicians. So so these are these are the kind of moments that any writer relishes. Absolutely. This is great. There's 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 energy behind what you're doing. But the vast majority of my life hasn't had that external attention or traction to it. And it's now that I'm grateful for that. Yeah. I'm grateful that actually I've been able to work through <laughs> various linguistic facial tics and <laughs> and and Tourette syndromes relatively privately. Brilliant. I was very encouraged listening. I think it was with you and a pal of yours that run this uh, amazing podcast, Backlisted, which I've heard from friends of mine all over the world that listen to it. First time I heard about it, my friend Kathleen Lee, who's a poet in Santa Fe, said, I've just heard you being read on Backlisted. You've been read. I said, what is this? What is this? He said, it's John Mitchell. So I said, got it, got it. Okay. So isn't it lovely that out in the desert... Isn't that incredible? Out in the desert, people, people are, are listening to, to the two of you. Yeah. But one of the things that I was encouraged was this extraordinary fact about Moby Dick. And the fact that it took, what would you say, something like 40 years to sell 3,000 copies yeah. and half of the copies were burnt in a factory fire. I hope all writers are listening at this moment and going, God damn it, I will continue. Exactly. I mean, Melville died in penury like a, like a lot of writers do. I mean, it's, it's one of the things that, again, I think this is where myth helps more in my view than self-help because you know self-help is 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 dazzled by the kind of to me that this this sort of the job of bringing people happiness and a lot of people's lives don't end happily a lot of people don't end uh, enlightened a lot of people's you know and and somehow trying to understand having a template to understand that is what I think, that's where I think myth is, is kind of helpful, but giving you a kind of a, a much bigger elemental sort of, um, and that actually the work you do may not be appreciated in your lifetime, but if, you do it, if you're doing it in the, in, the, in the right way for the right reason, you know, Emily Dickinson, it's, it's, it's one of the most amazing uh, stories. Yeah, precisely. But, yeah, Moby Dick, it's, it's hilarious, isn't it? And, and now... Course, I had no idea. Yeah. It is, it, you know, next to the Bible and Shakespeare's, and maybe maybe the Odyssey. It's it's the book that I hear everybody. And actually, although you know there is a there, there's a sort of an affectionate regard for it as a little bonkers, I do, I don't experience it like that personally. I just think it's it's just great. Well, <laughs> it's the, it's the thing I sort of feel about, you know, going back to Tristram Shandy, you know. And my colleague who does Backlisted with the Andy always says this, and, you know, maybe if you're finding it difficult, the problem might just be with you rather than the book. <laughs> <laughs> you know, take it yeah. and actually finding... Well, a lot of what we do on Backlisted is, is try and give people ways of of approaching these, what appear, you know, Proust, monolithic. But there's a, there, are, there's, there are ways into these stories 
Tristram Shandy's a cl- classic case. You can you can pick it up and st- just start reading it anywhere. Really, he, that's of all the books, of all the great novels, that's the one where you don't really have to sit down and read it sequentially because he's not interested in that kind of narrative. What, what would you say for somebody getting into James Joyce? <laughs> What would I say? Uh, well, I would say, like, uh, the cop-out is to say, start with Dubliners. I, d- I think they are classically perfect stories, and it gives you the sense of Joy- Joyce's world, a world that really he doesn't, he doesn't really leave. It's the mm, mm. You know, late 19th, early 20th century Dublin. How to get into Ulysses is, is, is an interesting one. I, I, again, I would always say, Joyce is quite a good writer to read sequentially. You know, if you go from Dubliners and then, you know, steady yourself and try uh, Portrait of the Artist because it's a, it's a wonderful, amongst other things, it's a wonderful story of, of an Irish Catholic childhood and growth into manhood, one of the... But then you come to, obviously, Ulysses and then it's how do I approach Ulysses? And again, I would say don't turn it into a chore. Read the first section. It's beautifully written and funny and interesting. Read the the first bloom section. I can never remember what what the which particularly mythological, and then you know, and then skip around in it. There are bits that are harder to read. Mm. Do a few pages a day. Don't set yourself. I'm going to read Ulysses in a month. It's, it's you don't have to do that. It's going to be around for a long time. It's been around for a long time. Um, know that at the end of the book, you're going to have one of the great the great female soliloquies in in all literature Mm. either you know you can skip to that if you can't wait or know that it's there and hold it out as a prize and then Finnegan's Wake yeah 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 (laughs) well it's you know it's again I think that I've not ever I've I've not sat down and gone through it page by page I go back to it I read passages and I find myself going back to it more more and more often actually because I think it's something that if you're, if you want to, I don't know, it's almost like a, a, a mental f- a floss for the brain. You know, if you, <laughs> you go a few, two or three pages of, of, of trying to figure out, and you know, you can do that with the glosses, or you can just let the words mean whatever they want. I mean, I've come to the conclusion as I get older that I'm less interested in reading with interpretive guides at my, I, 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 I notice I never read introductions anymore. I, I, tend, I might read them at the end of a book, but I don't want my... Yeah. I think there's something magical about that that relationship that you build with a, with a text. And some of that magic, I think, is dissipated if you're coming in with, with labels. And I, mean, I always say is, why not read Joyce? Mm. I mean, mm. there's nobody who's thought more about story and language and... And, and and trying to and trying to create a, a kind of a, 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 a these extraordinary objects which are part of the world and yet not part of the world. Mm-hmm. Why would you cut yourself off from that? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I know life is short, but it's you know, it's you think how many thrillers or whatever it is or or, or crappy TV shows you've watched in your life, and you think mm, could have been reading, could have been could have been struggling with Finnegan's Wake. <laughs> But that is my. I mean, I I never judge people for, I never judge people's reading. I find that that actually people are much more. I mean, I've always believed in what you might loosely call reading culture. That people are much more interested in in pushing their own boundaries and limits and finding new stuff than than often I think publishers in particular give them credit for. For sure, um, that's one of my. You know, ha- having been a bookseller 
and a publisher and a writer you know poacher turned gamekeeper turned mm-hmm. game i've i've always i've always felt on the i've always felt in my in my heart that what you're doing as a as a publisher is much the same as a put put so you're trying to you're trying to generate and channel people's their sort of passion and their interest and it's you know there's nothing m- more satisfying than a good recommendation and somebody comes and said i mean thank you for turning me on to this book it's completely changed the way i i think about this or that books really do i mean and, and they help i mean I, I i wrote to you about snowy tower i read mm. snowy tower at a particularly difficult time in my life um i was having tr- trouble with my teenage son who was depressed and it was again it was one of those books it was almost like every page felt written for me wow um Wow, and and the the Parsifal story, which I was only half familiar with, I mean, I gave it, to, I gave it recently. I gave a copy of it to my son, who's who's great now, and and, and mm. is having a you know living in London and working in in film. And I said that yeah, I don't know, might you might like this. He 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 he's, he's this is an interesting thing about how life works. I had never thought that he paid any attention to any of the, the stuff I used to go on about or read or talk about. And then I got a phone call out of the blue. He said, Dad, have you got any books on uh, The Green Man? I said, um, what, you mean the you mean the, 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 the kind of mythic archive? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm just doing a film script. Um, so I said, well, yeah, I have more or less a shelf on them. Mm. <laughs> I have pretty much everything that's been published. Mm. Anyway, he took a load of those away and he wrote a short film. His graduation film um, was a story about... Uh, uh, about a property developer's son who comes to a small village to check out the the woodland that they're going to um, they're going to be building a housing development and is and is has a kind of folk horror experience in the woodland and ends up burning the the deeds to the property and uh, and I'm reading this and he's quoting bits of poetry from William William Anderson's book and it's a very good little film and I it's just that somehow somewhere you know the old green magic had seeped into i thought he was up in manchester you know making lo-fi hip-hop videos for <laughs> cool but you know it's, it's it's interesting isn't it the unexpectedness of 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 how these these things adhere and cling to people i have a i have a teenage daughter who is my you know great delight and companion and she uh, has been in, in the, the full voltage of her dad's occupation now for, you know, 16 years yeah. and knows, you know, at, at five or six, she could have walked you through, through the story of Parsifal, which is extraordinary because it's quite complex. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, but she recently got into a writer called Madeline Miller. Yeah. And Madeline Miller wrote this enormous book Circe and before that another book I think called uh, Song of Achilles yeah. and I had the pleasure of I go over and teach at Stanford University every now and then run a semester they're, they're extraordinary university actually they re- I teach under trees I don't have to give the papers a grade I can write my own feedback very good you know, for, for the students' mental health, let alone anything else. But I, I did an evening with Madeline, and it was packed. And I assure you, they weren't there to see Uncle Marty. They were <laughs> they were there for the they were there for what Madeline is doing with rehydrating ancient myths and taking a figure like Circe, who's really significant 
in the Odyssey, but is not the main player. And she just kind of changes the lens on the whole story. And suddenly, yeah, I go into my room, oh, I go into my, my kiddo's room and I notice, you know, books on mythology are starting to... Then I suddenly see she's signed up for a, a classics A-level. And I think... Yeah. Wow. Okay, it's not all Cardi B. You know, it's it, there's, a, <laughs> there's, a, there's other things going on in the mix. So you mentioned at the beginning that you were brought into Tolkien as a child. Yeah. Now, the, the the two real rock-has-been-rolled-away moments for me were two authors as a kid. I remember I grew up in, in rural Devon with a young dad. My dad is only 19 years older than I am. Wow. And when we were... Uh, when he was in his mid-twenties, he got a place at Theological College in London, a place called Spurgeon's, and the family was rooted from the the Arcadia of where we were living into the suburbs of, of outer London, really, sort of on the way to Hounslow. It wasn't a good fit for any of us. No. And in the middle of it, um, I was in a WH Smith. My granny had come to visit, and I saw this book by this guy called Alan Garner. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I like the cover, Granny. I like the cover. And it was, you know, £1.25. Yeah. And she said, I'll buy it for you. And I hid in the writing of Alan Garner till this shit was over. Amazing. You know, until we were out of London, until everything, all the horror was done. I just hid in it. I got to the end and flipped back to the beginning. Got to the end, flipped back to the beginning. And then a couple of years later... Uh, there was a writer called Susan Cooper yeah. who wrote a book called The Dark is Rising. And you talk about the kind of... Well, you didn't quite phrase it like this, but you're making me think of Dylan Thomas talking about the green fuse. Yes. There's some British or Celtic or Anglo-Saxon energetic that if it gets into you early, you'll never shake it. <laughs> you never shake it off, no. <laughs> and, you know, again, our, our friend Paul is a great example of that. One of the things I mentioned to you, and you won't mind me saying just before we went on, is that he's recently had a, a profound conversion to Greek Orthodox Christianity. Amazing. And Paul is very, you know, forthcoming about. It's been an interesting journey for him through, in a way, the Temple of the Green Movement. Yes. Then into Zen. Yeah. Then into, you know... Um, certain forms of witchcraft. And so most people wouldn't necessarily predicting, you know, getting stalked by Jesus in the wilds of the west of Ireland. But I tell you what, if anybody sound, feels good and sounds good on it, it's Paul. It's marvellous. But, you know, you say that, but that those, those, those monks on those cells looking out to sea yeah. on the west of Ireland, it's a... It's a I mean, I, 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 it's a truly holy place, I think, the west of Ireland. Do you have a... Um, have you, you know, has religion knocked on your door over the years? Very, oh, very. My, 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 <laughs> my dad was a, is, well, he's, he's retired, but he's a priest, uh -huh. um, uh, Anglican priest. So I grew up with um, a very complicated relationship. Complicated because my, my dad was a, he was a very powerful preacher and a very politically motivated. He was a complicated human being and faithful to my mother throughout their marriage um, and ended up leaving my mum for on the point of retirement for a, a younger woman and they're now I mean they're now very happy I, I it was difficult at the time but we're all we're all we're all friends again now 
When we moved to the village 25 years ago, Rachel, my wife, and I went to church quite regularly. In fact, she became a church warden, and I rang the bells, and we, we've slightly drifted away from that because of the... It's, I mean, it shouldn't matter, but we had a, a couple of vicars who we didn't get on with, and, you know, it's sort of, you know, I had to, boys to take to rugby on a Sunday. And, but the, I mean, I have a, I have a complicated relationship. I mean, I, I can't, Christianity matters, the Christian year matters to me, the rhythm of the Christian year matters to me. I mean, I struggle, like everyone, with the, with hypocrisy and the idea of authority and, you know, the, the, the 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 hideousness of the history in lots of ways of what religion has done to 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 Christianity in, as as bad as 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 most if not worse, but interestingly the, the the orthodox Christianity is something that's always intrigued me. It's just the kind of the the idea of it starting of a religion starting in the desert and of it being a kind of cleansing away of all the all the accumulated sort of rules and and, and thought control of, of Judaism and that has always fascinated me it's, and I I think I wouldn't self-identify as a pagan I think I think you're talking about that green fuse energy and a lot of Christianity feels like it comes from that, that you can see how they're compatible you can see how churches you know pagan sites were repurposed and I think that for me, that's almost the the history of this country, the the, 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 the tension between between those two those two things. Uh, uh, a few years ago, I was involved with a long term project with a late American poet called Tony Hoagland. Wonderful poet, yeah, 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 just just great. And Tony and I were digging into a lot of the stuff that is a huge. You'll know the book, a Celtic miscellany by Kenneth Hurlston Jackson. Yes, that is a book. You know, you're going to have to throw that one in the clay with me. You know, it, it really <laughs> it's is. amazing. Be- be- because one of the brilliant things about it is Jackson's translations are, are accurate, but they're, they're a little dusty on occasion. So if you have the ear and the eye and the music of a storyteller, you're trying to get reassemble the bones of what's being communicated and get it to dance again. And so I worked with Tony for several years and and while he was dying, actually, which was one of the really sort of the incredibly poignant things that we realised Grey Wolf did a great job, put it out, but we knew it wouldn't come out in his lifetime. It came out just after. Yeah. But one of the things within so many of the anonymous poems we worked on is this ecstatic, useful struggle between the pagan world, the exfoliating world of nature and the arrival of, you know, the Christian message in Ireland and Wales. And actually in that tension was something really good. That's exactly where I sort of, I would locate most of my, the stuff that really interests me, the stuff that grabs me. Um, my, not quite the same, not not uh, London, but I, we, I was transplanted from the English countryside near here and found myself in New Zealand as a 12 year old wow. and and was trauma I mean I spent I was pretty traumatized yeah. by it but exactly the same thing I created this little Ghana Susan Cooper 
Tolkien became the, the the things that kept me connected to where what I felt was my my home and my my grandfather who was a very important figure in my life. He was the real saint, you know. My he, my grandfather had didn't have much time for my father, <laughs> but he and I had bonded at an early age, and so I felt separated from all that good energy. But those books kept me alive. I mean, I've made my piece. I, I see now that New Zealand was a wonderful. There's much about it, and and um, my brother's still there. My mum went back there. My 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 daughter lives there. But I've, you know, understanding and learning Maori and Maori culture became something that I I really influenced and 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 enriched my life but i i always knew i'd come back (laughs) i always knew i'd come back to to this strange this strange islands that we live in but i went on i mean amazingly talk about an an other strange experiences i i'm sitting at my desk at harville and christopher mcclehouse sends an email around to everybody who said does the name alan garner mean anything to any of you rachel and i immediately say yes (laughs) um and from that, we ended up publishing uh, um, Alan Garner's Strandloper, Thursbitch, amazing books, and became... Yeah. And again, I, I sort of became... And I'm still very close to him and very close to Liz, his daughter, and more connections. It's through all of that that I became... Got to know Hugh Lupton and Daniel Morden, storytellers. So it's almost like... Martin, our lives have been, you know... They have. It's very they odd really, to me that, really that we've been dancing around one I another know. and it's very odd that we shouldn't... It's, it's still but now, but, I mean, there's always, a, there's always a way in these things. But so Alan's, I have to say, and this is his new book, you will absolutely blow your mind. Oh. It's a late masterpiece that sort of has the energy of... Um, of the Stonebook Quartet, which I think might might be his 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 greatest, but it's also got the lovely um, um, kind of nineteen forties childhood quality that is memoir. Mm. Where should we run to? That was published a couple of years ago. It's it's called Treacle Walker, and it is it, it, it's quite possibly might be his his the greatest thing Good he's Lord. done, and that's coming out later on this year. Wow. September. Wow. Well, you know, John, I was going to ask as we came to finish, you know, what should we be reading? <laughs> uh, and I feel that quite organically you've you've sent the message. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's no book that I've read, and I've read some amazing... One of the great joys of doing Backlisted is I'm, it, it, I'm, I, I get sent in all kinds of wonderful directions. So David Keenan, uh, who mm. uh, we mentioned earlier chose for his backlisted an amazing book called Agua Viva by Clarice Lispector, amazing Brazilian novelist. If you're interested in consciousness and uh, the relationship between uh, being and writing and story and imagination, it's I, it's one of the most powerful short texts i've i've ever read even though it's through you know reading it in translation david was on with the wonderful writer wendy erskine and we had mm. the most brilliant hour discussing that so as always with books it's, it tends to be the things that are you, you've read most recently that are, are most resonant but that but treacle walker has been um i mean i suppose because i know alan's work so well and know him and know the kind of his hinterland pretty well and i think it's one that you'd you'd also mm. uh, inhabit you know the wild high places and old old tales and mm. discovering i once went on a walk with alan where he was showing me in this valley thursbitch where there are there's a basically a, a, a neolithic temple that's been it's still kind of undiscovered and half buried in the i mean he's a most extraordinary kind of 
a shamanic figure still. But this book is Treacle Walker, which is out from Fourth Estate in September. Uh, definitely worth waiting for. John, what a delight. And I do hope the beginning of, of many other conversations. Absolutely. Could not, could not look forward to that more. So I wonder what the books were that got you through your childhood or your adolescence or maybe further into your life. I'm going to leave us now with um, a poem for John, poem for you, poem for me. It's a very old Irish thing called uh, Spearcast Woman, or at least that's what I'm calling it. Down by this river recently, I've been working with uh, the great violinist John Matthias, John's worked with anybody from Radiohead through to Cold Cut and many other places. And we get together and we have what we call adventures into the deep interior. We don't second guess it. We don't rehearse. We just begin, uh, often with an old text front and center. But other than that, there's no plan. So I hope you enjoy this Spearcast Woman. What follows is a wooing from Kyle the Hundred Slayer to the woman they call Creed. I'm nervous traveling northeast of the mountain. I'm up in the paps to spend half a week in Creed's house. Her house faces the mountain. Yellow-haired Creed is a good ruler. She's good to her druids, her diviners, her harpists, her butchers, her smooth stepping horse boys. Creed has the power to make my stay a pleasant one. She gathers the juice of berries in a great vessel and it is within that vessel her magnificent black shawl was soaked. She is lime white. There is silk between flesh and indigo cloak, quilt between foot and the rushes, ruddy gold between lip and drinking horn. Those that live with her are happy. Cloaks not patched or sloughed of color. Their hair is curly blonde like wheat. The wounded are consoled by magical birds cooing in her bower of brightness. Even those who have taken heavy blood will heal. Feathers of birds, both blue and yellow, are the wattling and the thatch around her well is a railing of carbuncle and glass. Each bed has four pillars of filigreed gold and silver, topped with glass, glinting crowns in the love-making light. Creed has a vault of malt and an apple tree that hangs above it. When her goblet takes the mead, four apples fall in at just the same second. There is magic here. It is not cattle of the shaggy head I have brought her. Just this poem 
that takes its time and is not a lie. Creed will be pleased with it. The Lord of all that ebbs and flows has positioned Creed as spears cast ahead of all other women in Ireland. Well, the poem worked. The two of them became betrothed and they took to Creed's bed for seven days and for seven nights. Thanks to Ben Adicott for producing Smoke Hole. Don't forget to check out my new book, Smoke Hole, Looking to the Wild at the Time of the Spyglass, available in all good bookshops. And bad too. <laughs>